This is Faithful Sayings, broadcast by the Leon Valley Church of Christ. Thanks for tuning in. Our passage to begin with today is 1 Corinthians 3.9, where Paul tells the church that we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field, God's building. And you'll probably remember that that was in the context of describing his role as an apostle and the other preachers like Apollos and, and Peter because of the divisions that were occurring within Corinth. They were elevating those men. The brethren were elevating those men and taking their names as a kind of uh, religious label or title and creating these sects within the Corinthian church. And so Paul is reorienting them, I guess you could say, in the first three chapters and reminding them that it is Christ that they serve. It was Christ who died for them and whom they should ultimately uh, be be focused on. Uh, and men, regardless of their function, whether it be someone like Paul, who we see as an example, or Peter or Apollos or any others we we see in Scripture, uh, are just, just men. They're just servants. Uh, but what I want to take from this verse for our, our study today is just the very idea that we could be, that people, humans, could be God's fellow workers. When you think about that, we know that God is omnipotent, and Paul will even say in Acts 17 that he isn't served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else in Acts 17, 24 and 25. So as we think about these two statements, how do we reconcile this in our mind? What could we possibly accomplish compared to him? How is it that we work with him when we add nothing to him, when he's fully capable and really capable beyond our comprehension? Uh, the only conclusion that I can come to is that he allows us to be, that he allows us to be his co-workers and in a very real sense, not just in some sort of token kind of duty tossed in our direction because he deals in the real and substantial. He's God has never been interested in empty performances, right? So when we, when he says we are his fellow workers, he is offering real work with real meaning and real, rewards and there is no greater more satisfying work than that which is done with and for christ the word that paul uses is uh, synergoi is the transliteration from from the greek and that looks a lot like synergy if you're looking at it on paper it even sounds like synergy if i'm pronouncing it correctly and that's the idea right it's this cooperation between two Agents, two individuals for a common cause. And every other time the word is used in the New Testament, it, it appears several times, it refers to two human parties working together for the cause of Christ, uh, with two exceptions. And one is in 3 John. The other, of course, is the one that we're considering in 1 Corinthians 3. But the other one is mentioned in 3 John, where John says, Therefore we ought to receive such men so that we might be fellow workers with the truth. And so the word that John is using for fellow workers is the same word that Paul does in 1 Corinthians 3.9. But John is picturing Christians in that text as partners or fellow workers with the truth itself, uh, which 
also performs its work in the hearts of, of men who believe. As Paul will say in First Thessalonians 2 and verse 13. And so this is really kind of a side point to our, our, our main discussion, but I wanted to pause briefly to consider that that's amazing in and of itself, that to the degree we handle the truth accurately, 2 Timothy 2.15, and we deliver it faithfully, 2 Timothy 2, and we speak the truth in love, the Bible says that we are co-workers alongside of the truth as it is effectually working in those around us. Uh, so why does God do this? Why, there's, you know, he obviously is fully capable. He's fully omnipotent, again, beyond our comprehension. So why did he choose this direction? Why did he choose to allow us to be co-workers in the great work that he wants to accomplish in the world? And that is the salvation of souls. And I think that from the outset, as with so many things, that there's probably reasons beyond us, uh, as Moses says in Deuteronomy 23, that there's hidden things that belong to God, but that which is revealed belongs to us. And there are some things that he has revealed with regard to the work uh, that we are blessed to, to be a part of, that he allows us to be workers with him in. And one of those reasons is uh, blessing. That blessing comes through being a fellow worker with, with God. And so, as you remember, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 3, uh, excuse me, um, I want to go to John 13 first, because uh, I want to begin with these words of Jesus in John 13, 16, where Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. And then we take Paul's words from Ephesians 1, 3 alongside of that, that every spiritual blessing is found in Christ. But as we understand Jesus, we, 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 we know that those blessings in Christ are not found apart from obeying him. And remember in John 13, the, the context was he had just finished washing the disciples' feet, right? Despite Peter's initial protest against that, he goes, <clears throat> excuse me, he goes around the room to each one of them and he's washing their feet. And, and then on the end of that, after doing that, he speaks those words. Right? You're, you're not greater than your master. If this is what I've done for you, then you should do it for one another. And if you know these things, You'll be blessed if you do them. And so that condition, I think, contributes to our understanding of, you know, the the reason God allows us to be his fellow workers is because he wants to bless us. And specifically, he wants to bless us through the work that he's called us to do or through serving one another. Right. If you do them. And so herein is the reason I think we've, if we reverse engineer that for a second and we, we think about the alternative I think here is a reason that so many Christians die a slow death withering on the vine and bear no fruit. Uh, and it's because they haven't determined to bear any fruit. So God has made his conditions known whereby we can enjoy spiritual blessings such as peace and comfort and hope. And, and he has made his conditions known wherein we can find strength in him and satisfaction and just any spiritual blessing you can think of. And so we have to submit to those conditions in order to enjoy those things. Paul will say it differently in Second Thessalonians. He says, 
Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and the God of our Father, who by grace has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope. Right, he's speaking to Christians here and now. We have these blessings, eternal comfort, good hope. And then he says, encourage your hearts and strengthen you, notice, in every good word and deed. Okay, so how will I find comfort and hope and strength and encouragement? Look at those last six words again. In every good word and deed. And so the, the blessed assurance that the New Testament speaks of and the hope and the peace that surpasses all understanding, Philippians 4, 7, are inextricably linked to your fellowship with God, which is itself dependent on your faithful obedience to Him, right? You walk in the light as He is in the light. You have fellowship with Him. But if you turn away from Him, there's no longer any fellowship. Thus, there's no longer any, we might say, there's no longer any faithful obedience, so there's no longer fellowship, and there's no longer spiritual blessings stemming from that fellowship. And I think many Christians sadly continue to learn this the hard way, which is what was happening throughout the letter of, of Hebrews and what he, that writer was chastising them for is that they were regressing. They were shrinking back. They were not enduring in the work that they had been given to do. And they were suffering spiritually as, as a result. A man will be happy and at peace when he gives himself wholly to the work of the Lord but anything less than that, you will rob yourself of joy. And so I think they're in at least as part of the answer as to why God allows us to be his fellow workers, because he wants to bless us through that work. And I think also he desires that we share in his glory. So reason number two that's revealed is his glory. Uh, this was his intention from the beginning for the only creatures made in his image, right? And that he gave them dominion and they were to reign or co-reign with him on, on the earth. And that's the destiny that Christ came to restore. And it can't be had ultimately in, in this world and in this time of life, it's, it's going to come after, right? And after the destruction of this, this world, but he would have us rule beside him for all eternity. If you look at 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 8, he, he speaks of salvation there in terms of final deliverance and then the glory, he says, that is to be revealed in you when Jesus returns. Right? He, he says to, the, to, to your praise and glory when Jesus returns. So certainly we are to, we're here to glorify God and, and let others see him in us and let our light shine before men that they may praise and give glory to God who's, who's in heaven. But you will also find passages throughout Scripture like First Peter 1 telling us that God's intention is for us to ultimately share in, in his glory for eternity. And the journey to that destination begins here and now as we submit to him and we, we become more like him. Uh, notice this is how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says we're being transformed into his image with intensifying glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And so the, the obstacles on this path only serve to 
maximize the glory that he intends for you. So that's another wonderful part of the equation. So we think, okay, this is his will for us. And as I conform my life to his character and what he's revealed in his word, I'm transformed to be more like him. And that entails intensifying glory. And furthermore, if there's any obstacle in the way to that, the persecution and the temptation and the, and the suffering that ultimately Satan will put in the way um, to distract us, to deter us, those can ultimately even serve to maximize glory, to for even more glory, as Paul goes on to say in the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16. We do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, yet our inner self is being renewed day by day. For our light momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal glory that is far beyond comparison. All right, so there, there it is. Everything God is, can use to ultimately bring us closer to Him, grant us more glory, uh, and be more like Him. He is original. We are derivative. All glory and honor and power belong to him. And we see that over and over again in scripture. And we know that that's the case. But yet, yet he graciously shares that with us. That glory. That's his, that's his desire. And the means by which he has chosen to do this is through the work he's given us to do as we serve his son. Listen to Paul again in 2 Thessalonians 1. To this end, we always pray for you that our God will count you worthy of his calling and that he will powerfully fulfill your every good desire and work of faith so the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you. And notice, you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so this is what Paul is praying for. This is what he's expressing his desires that God... Will provide these opportunities and strengthen you to for every good work of faith to the end that Christ be glorified, but also that he that you will be glorified in him. And again in Romans 8, if we are his children, then we are heirs, co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified with him. So he would have you rule with him in glory. But first, there is much to be done. There's much work to do. There is much to suffer. There is no other way. And I recognize that there are many in the religious world who would object to the the teachings that I've presented here. And they would say something to the effect of, you know, you can't do anything to avail yourself of salvation or attain glory. And I'm sure you're aware of that. And I'm sure you're aware of other like sentiments. And usually those objections are made on the presumption that any obedience that results in salvation is by definition meritorious. However, you will not find that teaching in Scripture. You do find where, yes, there are men who believed in meritorious works and thought that they had earned their salvation and put God in their debt and that he owed them something. You know, see Luke 18 and the parable of the tax collector and, and publican. Um, but the, the reality is, is that God is not robbed of any glory or grace when man obeys him and that a human response of obedience is part of his plan for salvation is part of 
how he intends to bless his people, how he intends to bring glory to his people. And you can see this throughout really the history of, of scripture. Um, and it's in a, in a, in a way, one of the specific works, so we've talked about just the will of God or work in general that he has called us to do in which he blesses us and in which we'll find glory. One of the specific things that we've been given to do is is root out sin in our lives, right? And, and in the Old Testament, the destruction of nations and individuals and, and others is couched in terms of salvation, that God would picture restoration and righteousness in terms of condemning sin in terms of executing his his foes and so that prefigured what god intends to accomplish in each individual he intends in other words he intends to save you from the evil within yourself and he intends to purge it and sanctify you through his truth. But that includes a response from you. Notice we, we read 1 Thessalonians 2.13 earlier. He said that the word performs its work in you who believe. The word performs the sanctifying work of the truth, this setting apart, becoming more like Christ, is contingent upon you believing, you submitting, you being faithful. And this purging of evil which is part of the transformation to be more like Christ, he, he will see it through to completion. Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you, Paul says, will see it through to completion. He's not going to leave any stone unturned. Right? Hebrews 4.12, the sword of his word is sharp and living and active, and it discerns the thoughts and tensions of the heart. It, expose, it exposes us. And his desire is for you to be a co-worker with him in that effort. Which is why he says, you put to death the components of your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed. Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on sons of disobedience. So here is, he is showing us the way and he is motivating us to go the way. But the decision to go the way is yours. The decision to put to death what is earthly in you is yours. God has handed you the sword of the Spirit, and you will do the executing of self. And so will He. The power is in the Word, but you're the one who applies it to yourself. And that Word is going to shine a light upon every spiritual cancer that has to be removed. Peter will say, Rid yourselves, therefore, of all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. Like newborn babies craves the pure spiritual milk of the word, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, uh, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. And so with each success, as you continue to rid yourself of all these things, you lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us. With each success, you'll be that much closer to your final deliverance. This is what it means to grow up in respect to our salvation, to strive for perfection and completion in, in Christ. You will be better for having removed the cancer, but God is not satisfied with this. He wants you to press on, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
This is nothing that you've earned. On the contrary, when man submits to the conditions God has set down, he is promised glory, honor, and salvation. God didn't have to extend that. He didn't have to offer that. But he does. In submitting to in obedience to God, Jesus says in Luke 17.10, you're just doing what you were supposed to do all along. And when you have done all that the Lord has commanded you, say we are unworthy slaves because we have only done that which we ought to. Right, so even on your best day, if you were, if you didn't sin, if all you have done is just what was expected of you. No reward. Jesus says the master doesn't thank the slave because he did his duty, yet he does so much more. He offers a sonship. The very possibility of obedience is God affording you an opportunity to serve him. And then in that, in that obedience, in that surrender, find the joy that comes from being part of him, being one of his faithful. You know, think back to those conquests of old. God could have wiped Jericho off the map with a single breath or any means of his choosing, but he didn't. He allowed his people to share in the glory and satisfaction of victory. They didn't earn it. And they knew this. They recognized this in Joshua 6. They said, the Lord has given you the city. And God himself said earlier in that chapter, go and take it for I have given it to you. Now, did that diminish God's glory in any way? Was he not ultimately responsible for their triumph? Of course he was. And again, they knew this, and they praised him for it, and they gave him the glory for it. But he graciously allowed them to participate in his triumph. What if they had failed to charge the hill? What if they had heard the instructions that sound so silly of marching around a city one time for six days and then several times on the last day? And what if they had refused to go forward? Well, we know what would happen. Because their ancestors had already made that choice back in Numbers 13. And they were wiped out and an entire generation was destroyed. So just as God allowed his ancient people the honor and glory of participating in his great conquest then, so too does he afford you the opportunity to be his fellow worker and conqueror today. Through him we overwhelmingly conquer. He has the power... He has the ability to deliver us from evil, to conquer evil within us and around us through Christ. But you must choose to take up the sword and shield and follow him. And in so doing, you find blessing and glory.